Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me. Is it only Tuesday? Man, it already feels like it should be Thursday or Friday. Maybe that's because Friday night I was up till, what, one in the morning waiting to see what Kevin McCarthy was going to tell us uh, once he was elected speaker and listen to Hakeem Jeffries. I think that felt like a whole other day to me. So my sense of time is a little warped this week. Um, but man, oh, man, we still got a lot going on just minutes ago within the last 30 minutes. Alan Weisselberg. Do you remember that name? He was the chief financial officer of the Trump organization. He was accused of, um, um, well, there was uh, basically tax fraud. Let's just sum it up by saying tax fraud. He was given a lot of perks in the job that should have counted as income, should have counted as part of the remuneration for his work. And uh, were never really accounted for. He struck a deal. Finally, after holding out for quite a while, he struck a deal and supplied prosecutors with a lot of information about the Trump organization. And because of that, he's gotten a relatively light sentence. But the judge wasn't happy about it. The judge sentenced him to five months. And in New York... Um, that means he will be going to Rikers Island. That's where you don't want to send a 75 year old guy. Anyway, uh, five months because of tax fraud, he's going to Rikers Island. But the judge told him that had he not struck this deal and cooperated, that the sentence would have been much, much tougher The judge not happy with the things he learned about Alan Weisselberg during this trial. And had Weisselberg not finally decided to share what he knew about the Trump organization and how it worked and its structure, it would have been it would have been much, much worse. The judge not a particularly happy camper today. Um. By some accounts, the company benefits that he got over what is probably a 12-year period were worth just under $2 million, and he never paid any taxes on any of that money. He, um, As part of his compensation, he got use of a Manhattan apartment, a couple of Mercedes-Benz tuition payments, uh, at a pricey private school for his grandkids. Um, remember, though, five months of which he will maybe serve half as long as because um, usually they cut the sentence by 50 percent for good behavior. I can't imagine a 75-year-old guy who's never been incarcerated before is going to be getting into too much trouble at Rikers. So um, it will probably, by some estimates, it'll be about 100 days. Now, I have not read any reporting on this, but 
at the time Alan Weisselberg was charged, it was pointed out that many of the same Trump Organization perks that he had benefited from were also shared with Ivanka, that she also got some of these perks. And if that is the case, and Ivanka did not pay taxes, like Alan Weisselberg, wouldn't that mean that she was also guilty of tax fraud? Or, or, if she has a really good set of lawyers, and I can only imagine she does, maybe they went to the government and they said, oopsie, Ivanka didn't know any of this was uh, supposed to be taxable income. She's very sorry. She will certainly pay any back taxes and any fines right here, right now. And she is just so apologetic. She didn't understand, you know, that um, things weren't being handled the way they were supposed to be. If that happened, if that happened, it hasn't become public, at least not yet. But if I were in Ivanka's shoes and I saw this happening and I knew that the same things applied to me, I got to tell you, I would do everything in my power to get out in front of it. You know, she may have felt for a while that her position as Donald Trump's daughter would be protection enough. I don't think she thinks that anymore. I really don't. Yes, it's true. He hasn't yet been officially indicted him personally. But it's coming. It's coming. By all accounts, it is coming. So, um, I wonder. Some of the reporters <clears throat> who pointed out the fact that she benefited from a lot of these same perks. It's time. It's time to dig into this, folks. Um, If Alan Weisselberg is guilty of tax fraud, where does that leave Ivanka? We shall see. So that's just something that's happened just in the last half hour. Let's talk about what, you know, before we talk about what else is going on, let's backtrack a little bit. (sighs) Let's talk about Kevin McCarthy. I know. It kept me up till one in the morning. Man, oh man, it was it was really riveting. Kevin McCarthy is the new Speaker of the House. Very tenuous, but still Speaker of the House. I had read about this, but I actually heard the sound clip this morning. While he was still there, after he'd, you know, been elected Speaker of the House in the wee hours of um, Saturday morning, He um, talked briefly to some reporters in the hallway. Did he thank the 200-some Republicans who stuck by him? No. Mm -mm. Did he thank Matt Gaetz for finally making it possible for him to be speaker? Nope, didn't do that either. He thanked Donald Trump 
Remember, right after January 6th, Kevin McCarthy, along with everybody else, condemned what happened and condemned those who were responsible in whatever form within a week, within one week, within seven days, Kevin McCarthy got on a plane, went to Mar-a-Lago and made up with Donald Trump. Oh, Donald Trump, I really didn't mean it. Remember how Lauren Boebert, during one of her speeches that night, she said she'd gotten a call from Donald Trump. Donald Trump said, cut it out, get in line, vote for McCarthy. And she said, you know, Mr. President, I think you've got it wrong. You should be calling Kevin McCarthy and telling him he should step aside. Lauren Boebert dissing Donald Trump publicly on the House floor. But um, whether or not his calls had any effect, doesn't seem to have had much effect with Lauren Boebert. I'm sure some of the concessions that McCarthy made will. Staff aides told reporters that they had seen a three-page document outlining all of the concessions that McCarthy made to the far-right members of his party. Three pages. Even some of the Republicans who voted for the rules hadn't seen, it's like a 55-page document, they hadn't, they basically were shown it with no time to read it. Because one of the one of the Republicans interviewed said, you know what? I really hope he didn't just give away the government. I really hope that what I'm about to vote for isn't um, a document created by the far right. Anyway, uh, the staff members said that there was this three page document that talked about all the concessions he'd made. So they asked Kevin McCarthy about it. He told him, there's no such document. There's no such document. Who do you believe? The staffers who've got no skin in this game and had staffers plural, so clearly more than one person? Or uh, Kevin McCarthy, the invertebrate speaker of the House? No, oh, no such document exists. Um, Kevin McCarthy did tell reporters that uh, he has agreed to go through with a request to kick Ilhan Omar, Adam Schiff, and Eric Swalwell off of their committees. McCarthy told reporters this himself. He said he's going to go through with that. The only good news here is that President Biden's got his veto pen ready. We're going to talk about some of the things he's going to need to veto in a few minutes, but I want to go back to the fact that right after he was elected, Kevin McCarthy did not forget who to thank when the TV cameras were rolling. Listen to this. I want to especially thank uh, President Trump. I don't think you should doubt, anybody should doubt his influence. He was with me from the beginning. Somebody wrote the doubt of whether he was there, and he was all in. He would call me and he would call others. 
And uh, he really was, I was just talking to him tonight, um, helping get those final votes. What he's really saying, really, for the party and the country, that we have to come together. We have to focus on the economy. We've got to focus, make our borders secure. We've got to do so much work to do, and he was a great influence to make that all happen. So thank you, President Trump. Blah, blah. Let's take a break so you can run to the bathroom and throw up. We'll be back with more after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Um, by the way, we're going to spend the first hour of the show just talking about the news of the day and sharing with you some of the most interesting sound. Uh, the phone lines are open, 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. You can also text me on that line, our texting service sponsored by Camp Kupagani, um, a really interesting place to send your kids so that they will grow up to be spectacular human beings. So 773-763-9278. You can call. You can text me. We're going to just be um, talking about the news of the day this first hour um, as a matter of fact, let's go to the phone lines right now. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Hey, Jim, how are you? Hi, Joan. How are you? I'm on Fantasy Island this, this this afternoon. I'm thinking of the impeachment of Joe Biden. I could see Jim Jordan up there with the gavel. And they push it to the Senate. I'm just curious how many Republican senators will join in on the bandwagon with Peach Biden. Because I'm sure it's, you know, you know, and I know it's tit for tat. But uh, in the meantime, I don't know, can they get, do you think they can get to that point? But I could see them trying without dispatch. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting now? I, I've said repeatedly, and I know you agree with me, um, Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy is going to do what is Whatever is expedient at the time, you know, whatever, whichever way the wind blows, that's the way Kevin McCarthy's ship is going to sail. But uh, months, months ago, when this whole idea of when they still thought there was going to be a red tsunami and it was going to be like, oh, we're going to impeach Biden, we're going to impeach Harris, we're going to impeach Pelosi, we're going to impeach everybody. Uh, And Kevin McCarthy was asked about that. And he didn't come out and say, no, absolutely not. But he said that that would not be something that um, he could see himself supporting at this time. It was like a really tepid denial. But any any denial from Kevin McCarthy is um, is interesting to note. And he said that that really wasn't something that he could see himself supporting. He felt that they had more important things to do because, you know, they're going to uh, what is it? The more important things to do. I guess that's Jim Jordan's um, wants to form a committee to study the weaponization of government. You know, <clears throat> let's let's start investigating the FBI. Let's start investigating all of these organizations. Let's start investigating the CDC and Dr. Fauci, because we know, you know, the deep state is out there. If only we can find it. 
Thank you, Joe. Thank you a million. Bye-bye. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks for the call, Jim. 773-763-9278. Um, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting is what appears to be the first bit of legislation they want to pass. They want to, um, some of the monies, some of the bills that have been passed under the in the first two years of Biden and the monies allotted, they want to undo it. Uh, they want to get rid of it. The first thing they want to do is take away the money that was set aside for the IRS. The IRS has been deeply cut under Republican administrations. In case you don't realize it, you know, the people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, they virtually never, never get audited. People like the Uline family, Ken Griffin, the Koch brother who's still alive, the IRS doesn't go after them because they know that these people have, they don't just have teams of lawyers, they've got teams of law firms, and that it will be a difficult fight, that it will be a protracted fight, that it will be an expensive fight, and the IRS doesn't have the person power and the money to do it. So who do they audit? They audit you, and they audit me, the people who can't afford to show up with 50 lawyers to try to thwart them at every turn. And that means that the richer you are, the more lawyers you can afford, the more you can get away with cutting corners on your taxes. Because they they know that they don't have enough money to go up against these people. That's what the increase in budget to the IRS was destined to do. There is over a 10-year period, there's money to hire, I think it's 87,000 people. But they're not all, they're not all agents. And remember, this is over 10 years. So some of that money is going to replace people who retire or quit. Some of that money is for people who do things like janitorial services. By some estimates, the hiring of over 10 years, 87,000 people, would probably boil down to maybe 10,000 more actual agents. And extra money in the budget to take on some of the big fish who know very well that they are likely to get away with whatever because they are too big to fight. There's estimates... I've seen all kinds of different estimates, but the bottom line is if the IRS had the people and the money to go after the really, really wealthy in this country and go over their taxes and audit them and find where they've claimed things that they really don't deserve, that the lowest estimate I've seen is hundreds of millions of more dollars. And I've seen some estimates that say they think it would be a few billion dollars that the government would get every year from the people who are claiming deductions that they don't really qualify for. And where do they make that money up? With you and me. Have you ever been audited? 
It's terrifying. When I was in my 20s, I was not exactly a large wage earner at this point, um, but I was audited. And my accountant, thank God, had actually started their career working for the IRS. And so they knew exactly where, you know, what, what the IRS was going to be looking for. And, you know, and the bottom line was because my accountant was no fool and he worked, had worked previously for the IRS, after the audit was finished, they ordered no change. Everything that I had claimed was fair. Um, one of my friends back before I worked in Chicago, I worked in California and the woman who did the weather on my show, uh, she had been audited. And again, not exactly, we're not the U-lines, okay? The woman who had been audited, the IRS actually, when they were done, had to give her money. Because one of the things that she had claimed a deduction on she had underestimated the value because she was just guessing. She had underestimated the value of this. I don't remember what deduction it was by t- like $10,000. So when the audit finished, the IRS had to cut her a check. You know how often that happens? Not very often. Um, politics girl. I've shared her um, audio with you before. She is every time I hear one of her one of her short little essays, I think, yes, on that issue. She's that's exactly what I think. That's exactly how I feel. And she's saying it so clearly and so understandably. She recently did a recording on the Republican efforts to go after the IRS. We are going to take a real quick break. I'm going to play that for you when we come back on the other side. Listen to the Tom Hartman radio program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We don't have to worry that it's going to take effect because President Biden has already said he's going to veto it. And frankly, it won't even get to President Biden because the Democratic controlled Senate said they're not even going to take it up. But the uh, House Republicans, you know, the people who are probably going to spend the next two years shouting and banging pans together, uh, they started off by passing a bill that would cut seventy one billion dollars out of what Congress has already said they're going to give to the IRS, $71 billion. Now, the Senate has said, forget it, we're not even going to talk about it. So President Biden isn't going to have to veto it, though he said if it ever got to his desk, he would. And, you know, I told you there were different estimates. Cutting the IRS means that they can't go after the really wealthy people and check and audit them because the wealthy people fight them with so many lawyers and so many legal proceedings that it sucks up so much person power and money that the IRS just doesn't even go there. Before this vote took place, the Congressional Budget Office, and that's not Democratic or Republican, that is nonpartisan. The Congressional Budget Office 
said that if that extra IRS funding was taken away, uh, that the deficit would increase by more than $114 billion. Billion with a B. Now, the Republicans are trying to tell you that they're doing this because the IRS is going to go after us, the little guys. But that's actually not the case. And you know what? Like, they care anyway. This money means the IRS is going to be able to go after the wealthy, the Ulines, the Ken Griffins. How many times do you think Ken Griffin's been audited? I bet we can count it on the fingers of one nose. So, uh, yeah, we are looking at some a serious dough that would have been lost had this gone any further. And I think this also is going to set the tone for what we're going to see going forward. You know, Kevin McCarthy is going to let his little radical Republicans put all the crazy bills out there they want to put out. And he'll have the vote was totally party lines and they'll have just enough votes to pass them and then they'll go nowhere. He doesn't care. This isn't a guy who wanted to be speaker because he had an agenda of changes, serious, substantive changes that he wanted to make to government to make people's lives better. This was a guy who wanted to be speaker because he wanted the title and he wanted his portrait hung up on the wall. So he's going to let all the crazies put out their bills. They're going to pass them and then they're going to go nowhere. They're going to go nowhere. This is how we're going to spend the next two years. Anyway, I told you politics girl did uh, one of her essays on the Republican efforts to go after the IRS. And I thought to myself, you know, this is she has put this so understandably and so clearly and so much better than I could have said it. I'm just going to share her words with you right now. Let's be very clear. The Republicans don't want the IRS funded. In fact, they've said one of the first things they plan to do when they regain power is to repeal the funding the IRS is receiving from the Inflation Reduction Act. Why is that? Because they care so much about you, the little guy, the real American, and making sure we don't get audited? No. The little guy gets audited all the time. In fact, the IRS has told us hundreds of times that they can only really afford to audit the little guy. Because the big dogs, the ones that get out of paying trillions of dollars a year in taxes... They have teams of expensive lawyers that the IRS just can't afford to compete with. So they try and make up those tax losses on the backs of us regular people. They have no choice. They keep asking for a bigger budget to go after the real cheats, but until now, they didn't have it. We're supposed to believe that the party who voted against raising the minimum wage and capping insulin prices and equal pay for equal work is just suddenly looking out for the people? We're supposed to buy that the Republicans who are running to repeal lower prescription drug prices and affordable health care for seniors, the party who tried a hundred different ways to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and who wants to phase out Social Security and Medicare is just looking out for us normies? Come on. Hell didn't freeze over. Republicans don't want to fund the IRS because it'll finally have the budget to go after their donors, their lobbyists, the industries that cheat us and support them. 
And just so we're clear, the 87,000 IRS employees that were proposed in the Inflation Reduction Act are to be hired over the course of 10 years. That number is meant to reflect everything from the janitorial staff to people who are retiring during that time. So there won't be 87,000 new IRS agents. Ultimately, there might be around 10,000. The goal is to make sure the department is properly funded so they have the resources and the personnel to hold the biggest tax evaders accountable. Who would vote against that? We leave trillions of dollars on the table a year, trillions of dollars that would allow us to pay for everything from infrastructure to defense, to shore up Social Security and pay for services and help the American people. Making sure the IRS has proper funding has to do with balancing the budget, lowering our deficit, taking care of our citizens. Our taxes pay for things. Democrats want to make sure you get what you pay for. Republicans want to make sure they don't have to pay for a single thing you get. Don't let them trick you. This isn't about you. It's never been about you. It's always and forever about them. Use your noodle. Use your noodle. Um, And you know what? She's absolutely right. They don't care about the little guy. If If they cared about regular people, when they moved to get rid of abortion in state by state, they would have added more funding for preschool programs and child tax care credits. If they really want more babies to be born because they care about life, they would want to make provisions for that life. But they don't. They don't. They don't. They don't care about babies. They care about politics, and they sure as heck don't care about us. Please don't forget that. One of our listeners texted in just now, My best friend's dad quit working for the IRS because he was sick of the little guy getting slammed while the big fish got away constantly. Yeah, that's exactly what happens when they don't have the people and the money to go after the big fish. Let's go to the phone lines. Ron is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Ron. Thanks for calling. Yes. uh, Last month in an interview... uh Adam Schiff said that Kevin McCarthy is weak and he will do whatever Marjorie Taylor Greene tells him what to do. And now we're seeing why she why she supported him. She's going to be a, a part of a, a committee that has top-secret classified information, including uh, names of our spies in Russia and other countries. And so you can be sure that she will give this to Donald Trump and he will sell it to Saudi Arabia. Or simply use it uh, as campaign material. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think that they look at this kind of committee that you're talking about, and there are a couple of them. There's a committee that's going to investigate everybody and everything. There's a committee that's going to look into the weaponization of the government. And... um, They are not doing that because they think that there are changes needed at the FBI, that it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. They're doing that for their own self-promotion. They, you know, if they give that information, uh, that top secret information to Donald Trump, he's going to use it in whatever way best benefits Donald Trump. That's his whole modus operandi. He doesn't care about anybody or anything except himself. And um, I just hope and pray, just as there were people close to Donald Trump who um, 
tried to keep the worst of his impulses under control. I hope that there is some way that this, if they do get access to some of this top secret material, that they can be forced to treat it with the consideration that it requires. I I hope there are people smarter than both of us working on that right now, Ron. I hope somebody is watching uh, her and also Jim Jordan, too. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. There is um, other news going on this day. Uh, You may have heard that Katie Porter, Katie Porter, you know her, the congressperson from California that always brings out the whiteboard? Well, yes, but you said you sell this drug for this amount. But here's what, you know, the people in my district pay for it. You know, like what's Katie Porter? Uh, she has announced that she is going to run for the Senate in 2024. Uh, Diane Feinstein has not yet said she is not going to run again. Um, but that is, frankly, considering the health issues that she's dealing with, it wouldn't surprise me if Diane Feinstein either resigned or um, simply left the Senate before her term is up. But her term is up in 2024. And Katie Porter, she of the whiteboard, has announced that she is going to be seeking that seat. Diane Feinstein, um, it's there have been a lot of reports over the last few years that she is there's no easy way to say it, that she seems to be suffering from memory loss, severe memory loss, whether it is some form of dementia or what. Um, but, you know, Ronald Reagan started suffering these symptoms when he was in the White House and everybody just covered for him until his term was up. Strom Thurmond and others who served in government well into their, well, Strom Thurmond was in his 90s. And by all accounts, his last few years in government, he was um, not really functional, shall we say? So it is not like Dianne Feinstein is the first person to go through something like this. But um, even though there has been talk that there have been people who've tried to encourage her to resign. She showed no interest in resigning. She ran for office last term. She was reelected. Um, but there's very little chance that she will run again in 2024. And frankly, if she does run, I think with all of her issues and what will come to light, there will be almost no chance that she could win if she ran again. Because uh, by all accounts... She sort of, from what I've read, she's in that stage where everybody else around her knows she's having severe memory problems, but she doesn't yet. So let's take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to share with you what Katie Porter had to say about this job that she is seeking right after this. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
So, Katie Porter, the Democratic congresswoman in California, has announced that in 2024, she is going to be running for Senate. She is going to be running for the seat now held by Dianne Feinstein, uh, a seat that uh, Dianne has held for a very, very long time. Uh, But it's unlikely that she will run again in 2024. Katie Porter, the first person to throw her hat in the ring. Listen to her announcement right here. We're living through a time of extraordinary change. I'm Katie Porter. Change can be electrifying and exhilarating, but change can also be disruptive, like the constant assault on our democracy and the dangerous imbalance in our economy. The threat from so-called leaders like Mitch McConnell has too often made the United States Senate the place where rights get revoked, special interests get rewarded, and our democracy gets rigged. Especially in times like these, California needs a warrior in Washington. That's exactly why I'm announcing my candidacy for the United States Senate in 2024. I don't do Congress the way others often do. I use whatever power I have to speak hard truths to the powers that be. To not just challenge the status quo, but call it out. Name names and demand justice. That goes for taking on Wall Street and the big banks, big oil and big pharma. It's why I refuse to accept corporate PAC and lobbyist campaign money. I don't want it. And I'm leading the fight to ban congressional stock trading because it's just wrong. To win these fights, it's time for new leadership in the U.S. Senate. If you agree, please go to katieporter.com and join my campaign for the U.S. Senate today. Thank you for caring about the California we can build together. Katie Porter, the first to jump into the race, probably not the last. But this also brings her to the attention of California Governor Gavin Newsom. Some say Gavin himself has national aspirations. We'll see about that. He certainly loves to taunt Ron DeSantis, and he does it well. I really have to say he does it well. But should uh, Dianne Feinstein choose to resign or should her health force her out of her Senate seat before 2024? This really um, shows Gavin Newsom an easy way to fill that seat. He would also um, have a lot of influence on who fills in Katie Porter's seat. I She's been a terrific congresswoman, and I think she would be a terrific senator. I could see her... Can't you just see her going toe-to-toe with Mitch McConnell on a regular basis? I can. I love that. I love her. I think I think she's great. Uh, there's a, some other stuff that I want to get in before we uh, take a break for news at the top of the hour. You know, Kathy Hochul, if that name sounds familiar to you, she was the lieutenant governor when... Um, Andrew Cuomo was forced to resign. She became governor. Then she got elected governor. She's a Democrat. But she is behaving very strangely. She's doing a lot of things. Some people see her. Um, I don't know whether she's trying to be bipartisan or bridge a gap. She has nominated a judge for the Supreme Court. 
who is pretty much anti-women's rights and anti-union. And she is, she's gotten a lot of grief for it, but she's doubled down on it to the point where, you know, I read, as I've told you many times before, I read a lot of newsletters in addition to the mainstream media. And some of the the newsletters, which tend to be, you know, either just nonpartisan or democratic or progressive, the ones that are democratic and really progressive are starting to call her um, the most undemocratic Democrat that they've seen in a long time, or they've called her a Republican in Democrats' clothing. She is really starting to alienate a large number of the people who supported her, including, including Jimmy Mahoney. He is um, a union rep. He's the general vice president for the iron workers. He isn't just a local union rep. He's a national union rep. And his union really supported her. They helped her get elected. They had boots on the ground. They contributed money. As he said, that uh, they were Team Hochul all the way. And when the phone rang and she said she needed more money, they were there for her. This nominee she's made for the Supreme Court, Mr. Mahoney said of uh, the nominee, the way it was rolled out was so unprofessional and so backstabbing. You just can't do this. You just can't take us for granted. This is in reaction to the LaSalle nomination. It's wrong. We got her elected. I'm not going to stand for it. She's going to she's going to try and bully it through. But this has been done terribly. You have to talk to Lambert. We are behind the Democratic Party. Yes. But you got to show us that you're with us too. My members, ten thousand across the state of New York. I'm the president of their district council. The vice president of the international, 100,000 across the United States. We stand against this nomination. You should not, in your first dramatic act, take the legs out of organizing an organized leg. I'm not happy about it. That is the union reaction. From uh, Governor Kathy Hochul trying to get Hector LaSalle on the state Supreme Court. It has created a firestorm of people who say he's anti-woman, he's anti-union, and they've got the court cases to prove it. So far, she is not backing down. But I told you, I just shared with you that part of that speech Jimmy Mahoney made from the Iron Workers General Vice President when he was like, what the hell is this woman doing? You know, we helped her get elected, and this is how she thanks us? Um, He was invited to be one of the guests at the State of the State address. After this speech became public, his invitation was rescinded. He is no longer welcome to come 
to the State of the State address. Kathy Hochul, some people are predicting that she is, um, she's trying to make sure she's never reelected. You know, that she's trying to gum the works. It doesn't make any sense. Maybe she thought this would just fly under the radar. Maybe she didn't really have the vetting. Who knows? But by by most Democratic sources, this Hector LaSalle is not the kind of person you want on a Supreme Court. Did she not know that? Well, that's a strike against her. Did she know it and nominated him anyway? That's another strike against her. Either way, she does not, unless she withdraws his name, she does not come out of this in a, in good shape. Um, one last thing locally. Speaking of uh, women in office and whether or not they will be reelected, crime is, of course, front and center on any list of the things that are important to the people in the nation, in the state of Illinois, in the city of Chicago. And um, it has become a real hot topic in the last couple of years as we have seen violent crimes seeming to just spread all over the city, violent crimes taking place in what neighborhoods that were considered sort of safe havens a few years ago. Um, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has a new campaign ad out, uh, and it talks about crime. I don't know. I, uh, I'm going to, in a few minutes, I'm, I'm going to play it for you. But when I first listened to it, it's really generic. I would have thought that a more of, you know, it's been a while since anybody's asked me to weigh in on a political campaign, but I would have thought that something a little bit more specific, like, hey, I did this and it had this result. Uh, this is just kind of a feel good about Lori Lightfoot and just trust her to handle crime kind of ad, in my opinion. Um, maybe her research says this is the way to go. I don't know. But I'm going to play it for you now. Tell me what you think of this. You wouldn't know it by watching the news or listening to the haters. But on crime, Mayor Lightfoot's got a plan. She's putting more police on the streets and getting more guns off them. When it comes to new strategies, new technology, Lightfoot's invested more than any mayor. Those are facts. Anyone that says there are simple solutions is lying. We didn't get here overnight, and we have a long way to go. But Lightfoot won't quit until we're the safest big city in America. I don't know. I like the music. One last note uh, before we move on to the other uh, portion of the show today, where we're going to be talking to some really interesting people. The Protect Illinois Communities Act has passed. Late into the night, uh, Governor Pritzker, Chris Welch, Don Harmon, were working hard. I told you yesterday there were some Senate Democrats that were concerned about the bill. They didn't like the idea of people who owned assault weapons having to register them. It has passed. It has passed. And it'll be interesting to see because I read some of the language and it doesn't specifically. Well, I need to talk to somebody who has more expertise on this. 
and the language, because it said that these that there has to be like an accounting. But I wonder if that's watered down from actually registering the serial numbers with the local police. There's, you know, Chris Welch said if they took that out, he wasn't going to support it. And the version that passed, he supported. So clearly he thinks that whatever they've got in there is going to work. And we'll find out more about this. Um, like I said, this it was like in the wee hours of the night that they were um, that they were working on this and trying to find a way to get it through. They got it through. I'm sure Governor Pritzker will be signing it since he was fighting hard for this. And we will find out if there was a softening of the language in any way that made it more palatable to Democratic senators. Keep an eye on that. Stay tuned, as they say in TV land. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to Michael Hawthorne. He's the Tribune, Chicago Tribune environmental and public health reporter. There's been some updates to the story about forever chemicals. And I also want to find out what he's looking forward to in 2023. That and more right after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. You're the only voice of reason on the radio. You give me hope. Having listened to you every day. Thank you for your clear insight. Always felt a little bit smarter. I listen to you every single day. I keep coming back to this station, and thank you for what you do. On WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. Chicago Tribune's environmental and public health reporter Michael Hawthorne has been joining us every few months to bring us an update. He has been doing deep research into what are generally referred to as forever chemicals, PFAS, things that we didn't even know were in our water, things that uh, leach into the water from all kinds of products, and things that apparently our bodies do not get rid of on their own. So, like, once you got them, you got them, kids. There have been a few updates a few months ago I saw that 3M, one of the big companies that creates the products that have these PFAS, announced that they were going to be phasing, phasing them out of the things that they make that contain them. Uh, they weren't going to do it. <laughs> Somebody said to me, Michael, I don't understand. You know, if I want to stop something, I just stop it. But whenever it's a company, it's like, yeah, over the next few years, we're going to stop doing this, which is kind of what 3M said. Michael Hawthorne joins us now to bring us an update on this and a look forward to 2023. Michael, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, Joan. Great to be with you. Hope you've uh, had a good new year so far. I did. And one of the presents that I bought my family was a great big uh, water filter, a zero water filter to put in the fridge. I bought a couple of extra filters. So we are good to go. Maybe we can't get rid of the PFAS we have, but by God, we're going to lessen our load going forward. That's a that's a smart idea. Um 
you know, water treatment, uh, the water treatment industry, you know, the Chicago Department of Water Management and uh, similar utilities around the country. They're they're in a real conundrum because the Biden administration is promising to impose or enact the first ever standards for some of these PFAS chemicals in drinking water. And that's going to probably significantly increase the cost of treatment. The, uh, there are only a few uh, proven methods to knock these chemicals out on a large scale. And uh, some PFAS are screened out by some of these methods and others, you know, different methods. There are about three different methods. And they might have to, these, these large water treatment plants might have to adopt all three to make sure that they can comply with whatever these standards are. We, we thought they might be coming down at the end of 2022, but uh, they're still somewhere in the White House where waiting to see what happens. But in the meantime, the state of Illinois is discussing the first ever standards in groundwater. That means uh, the communities and, and households that get their water directly from wells would be impacted by that. There's a huge debate going on in, in, at, a, at a kind of obscure uh, state or a body called the Illinois Pollution Control Board. And you've got uh, interest group after interest group trying to stop the state of Illinois from adopting these groundwater standards for PFAS. Many other states already have done this, Michigan in particular, New York State. Um, and the states are starting to act because the federal government has it uh-huh. for more than 20 years. So, you know, despite what the Biden administration has said, the Obama administration said they were going to do this. The Trump administration did. George H.W. Bush. Or, I'm sorry, George W. Bush. So we've heard it before. We're waiting to see if it actually happens. So the the organizations that are lobbying against this, are they representatives of the companies who have these things in their products or or somebody else? Well, it's the chemical industry. Uh, so, you know, the American Chemistry Council, that's the that's the top lobby lobbying group for chemical manufacturers, including 3M, that pioneered these forever chemicals after World War II. Uh, the company now known as DuPont, it was it was well, it's still DuPont, but it was a different corporate entity before when they were making and using these chemicals. Um, so, you know, they tend to show up whenever any kind of regulation is proposed on any chemical and they nitpick the science and they claim that, uh, you know, state agencies aren't using the proper procedures. So that's essentially there's there's you know, just you know, reams of paper, you know, entire forest has been cut down for the paperwork. Uh, on on the complaints from the American Chemistry Council. But then you also have the landfill industry. They're really concerned because when we throw away things that have PFAS in them, eventually it's going to probably leach out of these landfills, and that's going to increase their treatment costs. And so they don't like these either. And then you have the sewage treatment plants, the, the, the municipal sewage treatment plants, and we've talked about this before, they give away their sludge, the byproduct of sewage. Oh, yeah. Some of it goes into the water after it's been cleaned, and, and then there's this sludge, and, and it's concentrated with these PFAS chemicals. And because they're not regulated currently, it's perfectly okay for the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago and, 
and other sewage treatment districts around the state and indeed the country to give it away to farmers as free fertilizer. And that means that these forever chemicals are in a lot of cropland around the Chicago area. And we know that they can get into plants and then we eat the plants or we eat animals that are fed the plants, right? And this is a, a, a largely unaddressed source of exposure. So the sewage treatment industry, they don't want these groundwater standards because say, you know, uh, you spread uh, sewage sludge on a farm field for 10 years and there's, you know, a municipal well field nearby, uh, you know, could the farmer or the, you know, eventually the sewage treatment operators be liable for that contamination? So they're, they're completely freaking out about it as well. Interestingly enough, the MWRD, you know, that handles sewage mm-hmm. and sludge and stormwater in Chicago and Cook County, they're part of a of a of an interest group coalition that includes some of the manufacturers and users of these PFAS chemicals. So on one hand, the MWRD is on record saying it should be up to the polluters, the actual, you know, emitters or dischargers of these chemicals into the sewers or into the air to be responsible for the cost of cleaning them up. But they're also in league with some of these same uh, emitters, dischargers, saying that, you know, standards either at the federal or state level shouldn't actually happen or they should be significantly weaker than science says they should be. Okay, I, I, this is what I'm famous for. Are my what what I like to refer to as very basic questions, Michael. I understand um, that the water treatment plants they're not equipped to remove PFAS, so the PFAS are concentrated in the sludge. Hey, it's great fertilizer. Take it; it's free. But if I can buy a filtration system for my sink or for my refrigerator or one of those cute little pitchers that has a filter that removes these things, then clearly the science of removing PFAS from water exists. What, could we buy a big filter for the water treatment plant? You know, well, that's, that's, that's install a great big one and catch all the PFAS so the sludge doesn't have it yep. and we, right. it would fade out. Well, what can happen for the sewage treatment industry, you know, after... We flush our toilets and, and, uh, and, you know, so that, that is one source of PFAS in the sewers. And then you've got, you know, un, untold number of, of companies, factories and whatnot that are flushing these down the sewers. It's been a problem for the sewage treatment industry before with heavy metals. Mm-hmm. And, and what they, what they started requiring uh, industry to do is pre-treat their waste before discharging it into the sewers. So that's one thing that's being talked about out there, doing that for these PFAS. Instead of them getting into the sewers in the first place, you know, treat it at the factory. And and then, you know, they got to figure out, of course, how to safely dispose of that. And then at the water treatment end, you're right. You know, there are giant filters available. And, uh, you know, some communities, uh, industry has been required to install the, and pay for this equipment, 3M, DuPont, other manufacturers, because there are places all over the country where these chemicals have been either manufactured or used, and every time uh, scientists or regulators at the state or local level start looking for these things, they find them near near uh, 
factories near military bases that used uh, PFAS-containing firefighting foam near airports. Um, so it's 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 one of these things where the horses, you know, the the old cliche of the horse has already left the barn. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you know, why is 3M announcing that they're going to stop making these chemicals? They're facing a boatload of litigation. They've already paid out $850 million to the state of Minnesota alone because they contaminated drinking water in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. So you've got dozens of communities, hundreds of communities around the country that are suing 3M because their water also is contaminated with these forever chemicals. Okay, Michael, uh, I'm talking to Michael Hawthorne, the environmental and public health reporter for the Chicago Tribune. We're talking about forever chemicals. You mentioned uh, that putting them in landfills is also a problem. Um, Is that because of that landfills degrade and anything that's in a landfill ends up in water? Is it? I don't understand. Yeah, it would seem like a yeah, landfill would be a so, safe place to put something you that you didn't so, want to deal so, with. So, but landfill operators, modern landfills are required to collect any of the wastewater that kind of you know trickles off of the landfill. They call it le- leachate. And they have to treat that, you know, just like a sewage treatment plant would for a factory or for homes. Um, but they don't want to spend the extra money to treat it for PFAS because they don't feel responsible for it. It's the, you know, it's the it's the upstream polluters that are leaving this in the landfill. So it's it's everybody who could potentially be liable. They're trying to make sure that they limit their liability. And, it, and this happens all the time with everybody's you know, pointing the finger at everybody else. Right? Exactly. And what it does is it bogs down the regulatory process and 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 it delays things. And so you think it's, you know, the state of Illinois has been talking about these PFAS standards for well water for more than a year. Uh, the federal government has hasn't even introduced theirs. And so it, you know, it could take you know, several years and then, you know, the the inevitable court challenges and whatnot, the 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 appeals that are offered to different groups or individuals, uh, you know, and, and you've got people also saying that the state's proposed standards aren't tough enough. Right. Because some of these forever chemicals are so dangerous that the U.S. EPA now says there's essentially no safe level of exposure, that long term regular exposure to these chemicals increases our risk for various health problems, including some cancers. Michael, when you say that in the state of Illinois, we've been talking about this for a year, what exactly does that mean? I mean, I know that there are committees that deal with, you know, issues like this. So like there's the committee holds a meeting and like PFAS, you know, they're everywhere and they're in your body and they've been linked to these diseases. What else is there to say? Oh, well, really? Well, maybe we should read a little bit about this and come back in six months. I mean, I don't understand when you say we've been talking about this for a year. Talking about what? They're they're no good. They're everywhere. Right, right, right. You're right. You're right. You're right. And, and but, but the way government works, and this is why people get so frustrated sometimes, but, you know, there are these built-in uh, hurdles that you have to cross to, you know, it's, it's, it's the old, uh, you know, I'm, I'm using another cliche here. It's the old cross of the, you know, T's and dot in the I's uh, because you're in, enacting a new regulation. And so, 
you know, you propose something, the board looks at it, the Pollution Control Board, which is nominated by the governor and, and the legislative leaders, and and then they have questions, and then the affected parties, you know, file their questions or their opposition, and then they have hearings. They've had, I think, three <laughs> hearings now. So we're waiting for it to go final, right? And then so- and then and then there's the implementation. Does the Illinois EPA even have the the manpower, you know, person power to actually, you know, do this. You know, they just finally got around to testing public water systems in the last two years. The the state still hasn't tested wells. And there are thousands of people, you know, in Illinois who are on wells. You know, uh, I, municipal wells alone, there's more than a million people in Illinois who get their drinking water from municipal wells, and those wells are contaminated with these forever chemicals. So when they have these hearings, are there people who get up and say positive things about PFAS? Ah, you know, I've got lots of PFAS in me and I feel great. <laughs> I, I still don't don't get why. Yeah, the- it's, more, it's, more the, it's more than just the, the niggling little details. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you didn't use the right uh, you know, procedure to come up with this rule. You didn't consider the correct science. And so as a result, you know, the, the, the limits you've come up with are, are too strict. That's essentially the, the, the argument of the chemical industry, of the sewage treatment industry, of the sludge spreading industry. That's what they're saying. I mean, it, 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 that's what it boils down to. They're saying it a lot of, you know, convoluted, legalistic, jargony, you know, wording, you know, that, that, that takes pages, but that's basically what they're saying. You know, you, you're being too tough on us. Uh, wow. And this happens all the time. You know, it, this happens when, let's say, you know, it's pretty clear that, you know, lead, for example, is unsafe at any level. But, you know, there are legal limits on lead and water and in paint and whatnot. Now, you know, every time there's been a discussion about tightening those standards up, you know, making them more stringent because the science keeps getting better and keeps showing that lead, for example, or forever chemicals are dangerous at really tiny levels, maybe like any level, that, that, that you know, there's a huge uproar about, oh, wait a minute, you know, why are you doing this? Because, you know, we've spent all this time and all this money to meet the old stick, Right. And, but that's science. That's, that's, you know, with improved analytical methods, you know, now you, know, you, can, you can get down to the parts per trillion level with some of these substances and chemicals. And when they do the science, not only on animals, but with, with regards to PFAS and, and lead and some other chemicals, there's, there's human data. There's studies of people that show that, you know, long-term exposure to small concentrations of these chemicals, oftentimes in drinking water, but in house dust and sometimes in food, that that there are effects, there are consequences, and uh, and and those are costs that are not reflected in the cost of doing business for these companies. Now, you know, they're starting to have to pay out some of these lawsuits. We've got these multi-billion dollar companies. It's kind of a, you know, they, they tell their shareholders they're just writing it off kind of thing, right? Mm. So, so you know, it's, it's part of our very troubled and still broken chemical safety system in this country 
that that we're essentially being treated like lab animals. We get exposed to these things, these forever chemicals and other substances, and you know it's almost impossible to ban them. It's crazy, but it's true. I'm talking with Michael Hawthorne, the environmental and public health reporter for the Chicago Tribune. We're going to take a break and be back with more right after this. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Michael Hawthorne, the environmental and public health reporter for the Chicago Tribune. We have just gotten an update on what is going on with the forever chemicals, 3M deciding uh, that it was financially smart for them to start phasing them out and not make them anymore. Michael, what else do you see as things that you will be paying attention to and that maybe we need to pay attention to in the coming year, whether that's bills in Springfield or environmental issues that you're just starting to read about? It's wide open, my friend. Well, I think uh, a really interesting thing that's that's coming up is, and it's been percolating for quite a while, is the use of gas stoves in homes. There's a new study out that included uh, children in Illinois, and it found that um, if you have a gas stove in your home, the kids are far more likely to develop asthma. And you've got a member of the Consumer Product Safety Commission in Washington Richard Trumka Jr., who actually is on record saying that the federal government should consider phasing out and banning gas stoves altogether. Okay, tell me what the problem is with gas stoves. I don't get it. When you you burn natural gas, it creates particulate matter, fine particulate matter, and that gets into your lungs, and it's fine particulate matter is very dangerous. It's regulated at the national level in outdoor air. But what scientists have found is even sometimes with some stoves, when the gas is off, it's still leaking and it still can pose health damages. And when it's on, if you don't have the vent on, it also can cause problems. And so it's part of this whole movement as well to electrify things, to get away from burning things, to create electricity or to cook things because – We need to start doing that if we want to avoid the worst consequences of global climate change. Okay, another one of my very basic questions coming in here. Um, You say that when gas stoves are used, it creates particulate matter. Is that a product of the actual gas burning or is that like you know, crud on the bottom of your pan or crud on the burners? it's, it's, It's the actual burning of gas. So whenever you burn something, there's what's called incomplete incomplete combustion, and that's particulate matter. And that happens whatever you burn. You know, if you burn wood, you burn coal, you burn natural gas. You know, it might burn, you know, one thing might burn a little more cleanly than, than the other thing. But, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a uh, you know, tightly sealed home, think about it. We're trying to weatherize our homes to keep them warm, to save on our energy bills. But you know, then we said you've got a freaking stove in your house, and it's and it's it's you know, somebody once described it to me as you know you might as well just put your mouth on a car exhaust pipe. It's that amount of pollution kind of thing, uh, and it's something that for many years has not been considered because you know the gas industry did a very good job 
you know, promoting the use of gas in cooking, you know, that you get a great flame, you get a controlled, you know, burn, whatnot. It's great. When I was younger, wasn't there also an argument that gas was a clean fuel and having a gas stove, you were actually being responsible? Yeah, I probably said that. Yeah, well, I'm older than you, they, so you know. No, right, but I'm 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 up there, and they do they do you know the state of this is crazy, but the the state of Ohio just passed legislation signed into law by the Republican governor, Republican controlled legislature, declaring that fossil gas, you know, natural gas, is green. So you know this is the the influence of the of the oil and gas industry at at, at work. Um, and yes, burning natural gas is cleaner than burning coal to generate electricity. But again, what the what scientists at the at the at the you know, national laboratories and also at other uh, you know academic scientists are finding that you know they can they can have a controlled setting where they have monitoring equipment and they turn a stove on and then they can measure the particle pollution coming off of the burning gas. And then the, the the thing that really jumped out to me is that it's even happening when, you know, when you're when when your stove is off. Now, you know, if it's a gas fired power plant, there's somebody tuning it up all the time. Right. Because they don't want to waste money. You know, the, the, the electric utilities that use gas. But you're not doing that with your stove all the time. Right. And it just it just tends to, you know, manufacturing air or just, you know, it, over time, it, 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 you know, ages and it breaks down a bit. You don't necessarily notice it, right? You don't necessarily smell gas, right? Like you would if you, you know, the pilot light didn't light the burner and, you know, all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I smell gas, right? Um, But it's this largely unappreciated issue that's not only bad for the climate, but it's bad for our health. And I I think we're going to hear a lot more about it. Okay. Well, you know what? We're going to have you. um, I'm I'm going to do some research on this so that my questions are a little less basic. (laughs) And we're going to have you back in February because this is um, this is definitely something you need to teach us all about. Okay. You bet. Thanks so much. Pleasure to join you, Joe. Thank you, Michael Hawthorne for the Tribune. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with politics right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. Need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT. 820. You may have heard that there's an election coming up in the city of Chicago, February 28th. You may also, if you're a very close listener, have heard that on January, January, not February, January 26th, which is a Thursday, we are doing a special mayoral forum. Me, Patty Vasquez, Santita Jackson are going to be talking to all the candidates Right now, there are so many candidates. We've got it split into two panels. We are going to start at noon Chicago time with this mayoral forum that we are broadcasting live. We will go till probably 2 or 2.30. And um, 
you will want to be there. It is going to be a really important election. So Thursday, January 26th, Santita Jackson, Patty Vasquez, and me moderating the WCPT Chicago Mayoral Candidates Forum. So get ready to listen on your computer. If you're not in your car, we have a really good signal through your computer. Plus, uh, you can also listen on your phone. I do that sometimes, too. There will be also aldermanic races on that February 28th ballot. Uh, One of the aldermanic races is to be the new alder for the fourth ward. That's Sophia King's ward, but she is running for mayor. So uh, there are some openings on the Chicago City Council. We've been talking to some of the people trying to get uh, uh, Leslie Hairston's seat. Uh, Today we're talking to Tracy Bay, who is uh, going after Sophia King's seat in the Chicago City Council. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Joan, good afternoon. Happy Tuesday. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Okay. I am Tracy Bay. I'm a long-standing Fourth Ward resident. I ran for Alderman in 2015, actually. Um, A lot of people remember me from that. That feels good. I'm also a business development strategist with 26 years of entrepreneurial leadership. I have several businesses that actually tie together that um, have done some things in the fourth ward. Um, C2 finishes. I'm actually a part of economic development that happens in the fourth ward. So by the way, Pershing, the building right next to the Mariano's, I did all the cabinets and vanities in that building. Um, I look at it proudly when I drive past and go to the grocery store often. I am also the director of operations for ECCSC, which is a uh, grassroots nonprofit organization, stands for XCON for Community and Social Change. We are um, an organization we deal with reentry, workforce development, and violence prevention. We were actually chosen by the White House as one of the 16 organizations to take our model national. Um, and so I have also been a member of the Michael Reese Advisory Board Council since the inception of it. I have been present and engaged in my ward and being a voice for the community. Um, public safety is a very big topic for the ward. That's something that we do every day here. So I understand it at the levels of um, how to get at it in actuality and not just in theory. Um, Yeah. (laughs) One of the issues uh, that has uh, one of the many issues that's come up in this race is the idea of what to do to improve mental health services, particularly in underserved communities. And there have been a lot of different ideas put forth, um, whether it's reopening local clinics in neighborhoods, doing something on a more mobile basis, supporting service at local hospitals. What what would you like to see happen on that particular issue? So, Joan, when I ran in 2015, that was right when the mental health facilities were closed. And I went to a lot of those meetings, and I saw firsthand how the closing of those facilities um, really impacted in a negative way the people who counted on that service. 
um, it was really heartbreaking. And Could you so give me an I, example? Do you remember any anybody or, or anything specifically? I, I, I remember a couple of people had actually committed suicide because they didn't have their local facility to go to. And um, at that time, what they had done was they had established satellite locations that was once a week as opposed to every day that the facilities in their communities were initially open. And so that that just wasn't a good way to provide service to the people that needed that. And so I do think that those facilities need to be open. I think that mental health is a is a big issue and it's something that we need to address. I think the mobile vans are necessary, but I also think that we can also look to the community-based organizations that are in the communities to have people um, within them to be able to help out with that, to get in it, get in it at a um at a closer level, especially when you know it's those organizations depend upon what they do, their needs, and who they're servicing. If they see the need is great there and it's beyond the scope of what they can handle, being able to call people in to help them if they have a clinician service or even if they don't. I think there are different ways we can get at it because there has service, there's service in that lane specifically that has been lacking for some years now. Uh, Tracy, we need to take a break. Tracy Bay is uh, making her second run to be the alder. Uh, she, her name is going to be on the ballot for the fourth ward. Uh, Sophia King will no longer be in that seat as she is running to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We're going to continue our talk after a quick break. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. February 28th, if you live in the city of Chicago and you live in the 4th Ward, you're not only going to be voting for mayor, you're going to be voting for a new alder person. Sophia King, the previous... Alder from that area has uh, taken herself out of the running so that she can run for mayor. One of the candidates who is vying to replace her is Tracy Bay. We're talking to Tracy right now. Tracy, there's, oh, gee, last time I counted, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, something like nine candidates right now in this race. Do you think that all nine are going to stick with it the whole whole way forward and that you're going to have these eight other competitors? Wow. Um, I I think it's seven of us in this race. Seven and, down now? Uh, I have to cross a couple yeah. off my list. <laughs> there are seven in the race. I think there's still one up for challenge. Um, I I don't know. I don't know. I guess we'll I guess we'll see when we get to the election. Since there are a large number of people, oftentimes this means that whoever comes out on top is the person with the biggest sort of built-in constituency. Who are your voters? Who are your people? My people are the people who are looking for representation of somebody that they are accessible to. My my constituents are the people who I talk to every single day as I've been engaged in my community. As I said, I've been a member of MRAC. I grew up in the ward, so I'm I'm still um, from different parts of the ward. 
always at something, always present and engaged. So it's those people that I touch and the people that they touch and the people that know me and the work that I do. Specifically, we, um, as I said, I, I'm the director of operations for ECCSC, and we are presently in the Grand Boulevard area, for, um, for instance, and we're doing some violence reduction over there and getting to know those um, members of the ward. So um, we're also, we're big in helping to keep um, Halloween in High Park on 53rd at Bay. We were out there big in that. And so serving the community is what we do. So it's all those people that we touch and we are constantly in the community every day touching people. In addition to the people that you meet in the course of your daily work, have you been having campaign events? Uh, have you been a part of debates or forums or just presentations at either churches or community centers? So, yeah, we've had a, we've had a couple of events. We have forums coming up in the ward. Um, they kick off later this month, and then it's the continuum of them uh, days apart. And looking forward to those. And so, yeah, just just being around the ward and and touching the people and talking to them in and out of the businesses will make our way to all of them. You mentioned earlier in our discussion that crime, of course, was going to be one of the big issues. No matter what, it always seems to be. What are you telling your potential voters about what you want to do to make communities safer? So. Here's, here's the funny thing, Joe. When I ran in 2015, public safety was not a big platform issue then in the ward. And at that time, I ran on making sure that we needed to make sure that every child had an opportunity to engage in any and all post-secondary education, employment, vocational training, and entrepreneurial opportunities while in high school. And I do believe that, you know, we are looking at some of that not happening Back in 2015, we can't ignore the link between poverty and violence. And crime is economics and violence is economics. And so in mental health as well. And so we we had some things that were missed within the city of how they should have been handled and thought about for what the future looked like. And for me, having dealing with this every day, what we have are programming that help people, and we've got to work to prevent crime and violence at the source with intervention and proper prevention programming. Do you have uh, candidates you are supporting in the mayoral race? I don't. I don't. I don't have anyone that I am um, particularly supporting. I'm, I'm looking forward to that race and your forum coming up as excitedly as everybody <laughs> else. <laughs> Well, I'm kind of looking forward to it, too. I think it's going to be really interesting. If you were one of the moderators, what question would you want the candidates to answer? That's a good question. I would I would want them to answer, do you truly feel a responsibility to the citizens of the city of Chicago? And if you do, what does that actually look like? Like what, what programs do you uh, are you pushing that are strictly to benefit the residents, that kind of thing? 
so 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 it we got to look at it from a multi-tiered level to the least of them to uh the people that are you know have we it's a lot missing and when you're at the ground level of work and touching people and seeing the lack of resources and opportunities um like we are every day you wonder where was the ball dropped where was mm-hmm. the ball dropped if, and if you as the mayor and don't get it wrong i Listen, as alderman, you are the mayor of your part of town. So to me, it starts at that level. It starts at that level. And I think you've got to have the proper relationships. And we don't have to be friends. Alderman and mayor don't have to be friends. But you've got to be able to work together for the needs of the the whole of the city. And I don't think that that's what happens. Um, I think it gets, you know, picks and choose who gets the haves and the have-nots, and that's not okay. And we're dealing with that right now. We're dealing with the lack of resources and opportunities that haven't made it to parts of the city that need it. Um, We talk about public safety. And unfortunately, one of the reasons I got into this race is because I was a victim in my own ward, by my own house, of gun violence. So Tell us what happened, if you don't mind. I was walking my dog at 4.30 in the afternoon. And a gentleman came up to me with a gun on my friend and I. And I guess the exchange was taking too long between him and I because who knew that he had somebody looking on, watching in a car that pulled up and then put that gun to my head to, to demand nothing because I had nothing to give him. I was walking. My dog, I had keys in my dog leash. And so to have experienced that, so I understand the level of what that is. And can, and can understand from anybody who has been affected by that and anybody that they know that it's not something easy to deal with. Um, and there are parameters we can put in place for that. I wasn't robbed by youth, and we're so youth-focused, and we should be. Don't get me wrong. We absolutely should be, but I was robbed by grown men who, again, lack resources and opportunities from whatever part of town they came from to better their own lives. What, how did did they end up taking anything from you or just leaving? They ended up taking my keys. They ended up, my friend, she did have a purse. They ended up taking her purse. Um, and then, yes, they, they drove off actually with an apology, as crazy as that sounds. They apologized to you for taking your stuff at gunpoint. Imagine, yes. Why do you yeah. think they apologized? I don't even know. I don't even know if it was sincere. But at the same time, it made me, it was over the summer. And so at the same time, what it made me realize is, like I said, we deal with a lot of youth. Um, but in that aspect, it made me realize that there are grown men that need resources, that need opportunity, that need something better in life. So for the mayor, yeah, my question would be, for that mayoral race, my question would be, um, do you think of those people? Do you think of those people and what their needs look like so that they don't do that again to the next person, so that nobody has to feel what that feels like to have a gun put to your head? Did you call the police when that happened? And if so, what was the response? They actually, they came, the police came, and um, we made a report, and that was pretty much it. And, and, and it's, I hate to say it, but um, nobody's camera caught it. You know, in the day and age of the ring and nest cameras, nobody caught it. And that's just the unfortunate thing. So 
yeah, it was it was um, it was a traumatic experience. But yeah, it's part of the reason that made me step up in this race because who thinks of those people so that they don't come commit those crimes to people who they think there's something to take something from? What do you think would have? or could have in could in the future make a difference in the lives of those two men who robbed you. Hmm. Was there some social services program, some safety net, a jobs training program? I think that I think all of that is missed. Again, where we get in it and our organization every day is in that intervention part to intervene in the lives when we see that there's a pathway headed toward these high-risk activities. So, yes, I think that there should be assessments to that. I think that there should be credible messengers that we make sure get it people. When when CPS has a student that they feel um, is heading down the path, who are they talking to? Who are, who are they talking to? We need to implement those type of services in CPS um, to make sure that we partner with those proper organizations, ours being one of them, that get at that and help turn that life around before that child and that individual leads to that lifestyle. It really is um something that requires a two-pronged approach. And I think that's what's difficult for any kind of city government because it's easy to do the quick fix, you know, hire more cops, you know, put more on community policing. You know, that's that's something that people can see happening right away. But the larger issues of economic development and training and social social support, those aren't so easy to see making progress. And oftentimes... It takes a while to get that up and running and an even longer time to really see the results. As a politician, I understand I think- that sometimes the quick fix that's obvious that you can brag about next election is an easier way to go. Do you think the city council has the fortitude to go with what needs to be done on a long term basis? I think they do if they have a different purview of what that should look like. And police have a job to do, absolutely. But you can't negate, but their job is not to intervene. And so funding the right programs, the right organizations will get at that work. There are many of them on the ground that are not getting the resources needed to do the work, who know who some of the perpetrators are and can get at them better than anybody. The goal is not to see children arrested. It's to see them being able, their lives being able to be intervened in and leading a productive life when you look at them a year from now. And that's mm-hmm. the successes that we've had. So when I talk about it, I'm not talking about it in theory. I am talking about it in actuality of what can be done. We have a couple of minutes left. What message would you like to leave our listeners with? I am Tracy Bay. I have a proven track record. The dedicated hard work pays off. In small business industry, I possess expert knowledge in business development and know the importance of establishing key partnerships for growth and sustainability. I know public safety is a big issue in the ward and allocating resources at the, at the right source and, I'm sorry, <laughs> to prevent crime at the source is paramount, starting with early intervention and pre- prevention programs. This is an absolute must. 
And I do see the all the persons role as the mayor of your part of the city. And I'm ready to lean into the needs of all the diverse communities of the fourth ward and to be the voice of city council that prioritizes the actual needs of my ward. And I also promise to remain engaged, transparent, and most importantly, accessible, accountable, collaborative, community-focused, and an independent voice for the fourth ward. Thank you, Joan. I appreciate it. (laughs) Uh, The fourth ward includes Kenwood, Oakland, parts of Bronzeville. It's generally considered to be one of the city's more progressive areas. It's also home to Cook County Board, Board President Tony Preckwinkle, who was the alder from that area for 19 years before she went to county elected office. Again, the election is February 28th. And for the aldermanic roles, as well as the mayoral race, if nobody gets at least 50 percent of the vote, the top two finishers will go to a runoff. That excitement will take place on April 4th. Tracy Bay will be on your ballot if that is where you live. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about you, your candidacy. I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Have a good day and see your listeners. Thank you. Um, We're going to take a break for news at the top of the hour. And when we come back, we're going to go out to California. We're going to talk to Bruce Rines, who is the former Los Angeles deputy bureau chief for CBS News There's a lot going on out in California. We're going to talk to Bruce about all of it right after the news. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Progressive commercial insurance can protect your small business with over 30 coverage options, an easy-to-use mobile app, personalized discounts, and more. Get a quote in as little as six minutes at ProgressiveCommercial.com. Discounts and coverage selections not available in all states or situations. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I said before, there's a lot going on in California Uh, So I called up my good friend Bruce Rines, a former Los Angeles deputy bureau chief for CBS News. And I have a list that's half a page long of all the things I want to talk to him about. Uh, First of all, Bruce, how are you and your lovely wife, Dawn? I'm well. We're both well. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. A little late into January to be wishing Happy New Year like Seinfeld. is. I got Happy New Year in February one. <laughs> um, are you guys getting a lot of rain where you are? Because you're in right right in L.A. Yeah, it, it, I mean, last night it it really pounded hard, you know, and and uh, it woke us up and just kept pounding and pounding. And you know, we're not we're not used to to something uh, like that. You know, the, the houses here in California, especially ours, which is almost a hundred years old, are, are not really built to take a pounding, uh, rain like that. When we have an earthquake, you hear it, it's like a train and, and then it's over after about five or 10 seconds, but this like kept on going and going and going. We got a lot of rain. Wow. Um, as you know, my daughter, Thomasina now lives in LA. She was driving home. She had to work late last night, she was driving home about 10 o'clock and she she called me and it was on she you know it was hands free so don't anybody worry but she, she she called me and she was like 
Um, if I've hit a pothole, will that hurt the car? And I said, well, kind of depends on how deep the pothole was and how big it was. I said, but because um, she said with all this rain, she said, I couldn't see it. And she said, she said, luckily, I was driving very slowly. She said I was going like 15, 20 miles an hour. She said, but I she hit a pothole. She couldn't see because it was full of water. Uh, uh, and she said that she, you know, she, she hasn't been out in L.A., of course, anywhere near as long as you have. But she was like, I have never seen rain like this since I've been here. Yeah, around 10 o'clock last night, it was coming in sideways. Uh, it, oh. We had a lot of wind with it, too. It was it was it was tough, you know, and a lot of people, you know, around here, it's, you know, some streets get flooded. Trees come down and, and things like that. They really got hammered up north that was really the, the the worst part of it for california yeah i mean i've been seeing um well even though actually not all that far north because weren't they uh evacuating montecito isn't montecito oh, yeah. uh, right by santa barbara yeah montecito was completely closed down that's right completely evacuated and parts of santa barbara which is right near uh there in carpinteria which is right along the coast uh, just south of uh, of Santa Barbara, yeah, they were they were they were catching a lot of the brunt of it. It was coming in really hard there. So, did you get a call from Oprah because she was looking for a place to ride out the storm? <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think you know. I'd have to you know, pull out the uh, Murphy bed here, and I'm not sure if that was uh, the <laughs> adequate uh, accommodations. Yeah, you're you're probably right about that. You're probably right about that. Uh, well, I'm at what I don't understand and, and maybe you don't understand either. I was, you know, obviously California has been very hot. It's been very dry. There have been lots of fires. And now there, at least in the northern part, there's a lot of flooding. And even in the southern part, there's a lot of rain. And I was reading yesterday in the Washington Post. Oh, it's not going to help the drought. How is that possible? You know, your water, you got water up to your ears now and it's not going to help the drought. No, it, 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 it's going to help the drought. I mean, everybody like you know, I, I especially after having retired from the media, I get more and more frustrated with the media's <laughs> portrayal of weather in California. This is going to help the drought, and some hydrologists are saying if we get a few more of these big storms like we've had here, we can almost kind of say the drought is over. I mean, we've been in the middle of a mega drought. It has been dry for a number of years, and it takes some time to recharge the groundwater and the reservoirs after something like that. I mean, you know, some of the lakes have been down, you know, 50 feet or more and 60 feet, and they found, like, you know, dead bodies in the lake. I was just going to say, does this mean no more dead bodies coming out of Lake Mead? <laughs> well, the, you know, there, there will be now. There's a fresh, you know, a fresh way to, to dump them in, I guess, now and, uh, okay. and make them sink under. But uh, but no, this, is, this, this, this will help the drought. And the overall... You know, I have a lot of sympathy for the people who have been messed up by this. I mean, you know, we've had, I think the number is up to 16 deaths uh, by now. A lot of people have had home damage and flooding, things like that. But overall, for the 40 plus million people in the state, it's going to be kind of beneficial. And we're going to look back on January, starting in April or May, we're going to look back on January and say, boy, that was a great rain. That really helped our situation. It's not over. The drought's not over, but it's it, this is going to be well, help us get well on the way to getting it over. Do Are there expectations that there will be more storms like the one last night, or is it over? <laughs> We're going to get another storm about the same intensity, and uh, then uh, all through uh, next week, I think, 
they think there's a number of them that are, are lined up, and then there might be a break in uh, like kind of late January or so, and then we'll see what happens. But uh, you know, it's it is a new uh, phrase that we never had when I was covering weather here in California: bomb cyclones. You know, I, I know we never uh. had that. We just had. We just had intense rainstorms, you know, El Nino-influenced rainstorms. This is not an El Nino-influenced event, but uh, but uh, now they're calling them bomb cyclones, and you know they, they they pack a punch. They're they're pretty they're pretty intense. So, did you feel like you were back in Chicago? <laughs> not at all. When I think of Chicago, I think of the snow that I was. Ah, uh, uh, yes, the, the snow, the snow, the you know, snow apocalypse. The blizzard at seventy nine. I was uh, I was there for the blizzard at seventy nine. You know. That oh was, my. Yeah, that was a big one. So, uh, you know, it, it, even with rain and wet and things like that that we're not used to here in California, it's a little better than those uh, sideways blowing blizzards that uh, we've had in Chicago every once in a while. Ah, you've gotten soft. You've gotten soft. Um, there's so much politics that I want to talk to you about. I don't want to get started and have to interrupt ourselves. So, Andy, let's take a real quick break right now so we can uh, talk about the political uh, doings in California with my good friend Bruce Rines, former L.A. Deputy Bureau Chief, CBS News, right after this. The candidates have filed, and Chicagoans will vote to determine who will be the mayor of the city of Chicago. Have you made up your mind? WCPT wants to help you decide. Join us Thursday, January 26th at noon as Joan Esposito, Santita Jackson, and Patty Vasquez moderate the WCPT Chicago Mayoral Candidates Forum. You'll hear directly from the candidates about the direction they want to lead the city for the next four years right here on WCPT. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Bruce Rines. He was the Los Angeles Deputy Bureau Chief for CBS News out there. And um, when we first talked about getting together today... One of the things that he told me in his email were that there were rumors that Katie Porter was going to throw her hat in the ring uh, for Diane Feinstein's um, Senate seat. Well, Katie got the jump on you, Bruce. I don't know if you heard she released a video where she decla- declared her candidacy, uh, said that she was going to fight for the people of California in the Senate the way she fought for people when she was in Congress. Um, what is going on with Diane Feinstein? Do you think she will finish her term? And do you think Katie will just be the first of many in this race? Look, I, I hope Diane Feinstein finishes her term. I mean, she's 89 years old, but she has been a tremendous asset to California ever since, you know, she took over as being mayor of San Francisco after the assassination of George Moscone and uh, Harvey Milk. She's done wonders for this state, and uh, she should be saluted. Having said that, you know, it has been very clear through the number of uh, political sites and, and newspapers have, have done stories about how she's really kind of losing a step, and she's, she, is probably, she doesn't maybe realize herself that her time is uh, over now. You know, and being 89, she'll be 91 uh, or 90, I guess. Uh, no, 91 by the time uh, 2025, uh, January 2025 uh, term would start. 
So um, she, uh, I, I don't know if she's going to step down. She may step down. There's been a lot of, of, of reports of it that, that she might uh, be persuaded into doing that, especially after her husband died and she's kind of like, you know, kind of lost interest in, in things since then. But, and also, I also have to mention that she is a very frequent traveler back and forth between San Francisco and Washington. And that would take a toll, I think, on anybody, but not let alone an 89-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. So um, if she uh, steps down early for whatever reason or uh, decides not to run, which I kind of believe she would decide not to run if she's still a uh, senator uh, next year, uh, I think what Katie Border did was brilliant. She's uh, set herself out as the person that you think of if a replacement has to be made. Uh, you know, and it's certainly mm-hmm. uh, verified by the fact that uh, two of her main potential rivals, uh, Adam Schiff and Ro Khanna, kind of put out uh, a statement saying, oh, this isn't the time to do it and stuff like that. But uh, she's got to jump on them, I think. And, uh, you know, if uh, something were to happen, Katie can step in. And I would also have to think that after that farce last week in the House, that Katie Porter is kind of sick of being in there and especially being in the minority party and uh, would like to uh, make a bigger splash. Well, you know, she's never been even even when she first got to Congress, she's never been afraid of making a splash. Um, I don't know how much you read about this. I haven't read anything about it for quite a while, but supposedly one of the committees she was on was chaired by Maxine Waters, who um, apparently wasn't thrilled with the whole whiteboard thing and i don't know it was a little bit the articles i read they kind of circled around the issue whether it was a clash of egos or whether maxine was of the opinion that for a newcomer she was a little too brash and a little too bold but um i believe katie porter next time around was not on that same committee um so I'm sure it wasn't it's not I mean, it's no fun being the party out of power, but she hasn't been completely welcomed with open arms, even within her own party. And she's been great, but she's been there a long time and there are ways things are done in Congress. And uh, and certainly uh, the, the the whiteboard took away from her from Congresswoman Waters uh chairmanship who took some attention away from that. So, you know, I can see that. But this whole thing of the committees and who's on what committee and things like that, I mean, I, I see that uh, Adam Schiff is probably going to be bounced uh, from the Intelligence Committee because uh, McCarthy doesn't want him there. It was as a personal vendetta. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of silly and stupid. And I would think that maybe she sees it's kind of I'm just speculating. I don't I don't have any specific knowledge, but I would think that she might think it's kind of silly and stupid to, uh, you know, to to have to uh, kowtow to a bunch of uh, other uh of her colleagues, whether they're Republican or Democrat, in the way that she wants to uh, make her points and do her job. Supposedly, Kevin McCarthy told reporters that he is going to kick Ilhan Omar, Adam Schiff, and Eric Swalwell off all of their committees. That seems like a pretty bold stroke. 
Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, going, it's the politics of vengeance now for the next two years. Oh, you, you think know, that's what Marjorie wants? Because uh, she got kicked off. Marjorie said, Kevin, I will be by your side, whether you want me to or not, as long as you restore my committee assignments and take away the committee assignments of this list of folks. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, what's frightening about this whole thing is what committees somebody like Marjorie uh, Green or uh, Lauren Boebert or, or, or Matt Gates get ultimately put on. And, and you know, there are all in all of the committees are important. There are some committees that are really important. And uh, you would hope that you would have some kind of thinking people who are qualified to be on those committees. But I don't know what deals that uh, Kevin McCarthy made in order to get elected on the 15th ballot. So, you know, we'll have to see. Well, first of all, you'd have to have thinking people to be able to put on those committees. And I'm not sure how many of the Republicans in Congress I frankly would describe that way. I think there are crazies. I think there are cowards, but um, certainly no statesmen. And I, I, I don't I don't know where we would where we would uh, draw that line for thinking people. Um, Bruce, we actually have a caller who uh, has a question for you. Steve, one of our regulars, is calling in from the Gold Coast area. Hey, Steve, you're on with me and Bruce Rines. Go ahead. Yes, and I, I do think that I would respectfully disagree slightly with one of the comments that uh, your guest offered, and that is the notion that this one big rainstorm is somehow the answer to California's drought issue. Even in the short term, you know, it's just like pouring a cup into, a, into an empty container or tub. And uh, it solves the problem in the immediate future, but most of this water has dissipated into the desert. It's not as if somebody's out there catching it in giant containers, and then we can use it down the road. The aquifers that uh, Californians and others in the southwest have tapped were developed over tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of years. So this idea that we're going to replenish the, the deficit we have in California in terms of this rainstorm, this one rainstorm, I, I think is misguided. Even five of them wouldn't do anything other than resolve the issue for the short term in the next year. California continues to use water the way it, that it does, that's all it does. Uh, this, this rainstorm and others in the future are just a way to say, oh, well, nature will solve a problem we don't need to solve. So we'll just put off to looking for solutions until the next time. But again, this is just the, the shortest term solution. Well, I don't think anybody disagrees that it's a short term solution. But I also see um, California taking other actions. Like I know uh, Bruce recently redid the whole front yard of his house in a way that is much more water friendly. And don't forget, supposedly the water departments out there went out and they put little devices in the water uh, lines for Kim Kardashian and Sylvester Stallone so they can't use more water to, to grow all their trees and grass and shrubs. Um, I, I think that, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, there's clearly got to be some changes for the long term, Steve. I don't I don't think anybody disagrees with that. Uh, you said there was another comment you wanted to make. 
Well, yes, and I, I do agree that with regard to uh, politics, and uh, people don't understand that sometimes a lot of the enemies that you make in Congress uh, are people in your own party. I mean, the other side of the aisle are not people who are threatening your leadership. It's people in your own party that you're com- that you're at odds with in terms of you know being uh, holding a position in that party. And it's young people against old people, the East against the West, North, South, all of these sorts of things. So people, uh, this idea that the two parties are just two happy-go-lucky families. No, they're like most families. <laughs> there are a lot of people in there you hate and don't want to talk to, and uh, it, it can be really divisive. It's just they're pretty good at tapping down that for the public uh, in terms of public consumption. Uh, so, you know, because they look like one big happy family. But, yeah, I mean, uh, Maxine Waters and, and the congresswoman that we're discussing here, I mean, that's nothing new. I mean, you know, some people feel it's time for uh, the, the, a lot of these people have overstayed their welcome. It's, it's time for them to retire. A new generation, new blood is needed in Congress on the Republican and Democratic side. And other people believe that experience and time in office, you know, should, uh, should that play a role and you should still stay, be able to stay there as long as you can serve. So I, I don't have the answer, but that's where we stand. Thank you, Steve. And on that issue, I must say I am of two minds as well, because it's one thing to sit here and say, oh, you know, Nancy Pelosi and uh, Dianne Feinstein and all the oldsters, you know, um, Lindsey Graham and all the ones who are 85 plus, you know, should step aside. And then I think to myself, you know, there might be some people, Bruce, who would argue that maybe radio is a young person's gig and maybe the old farts on radio ought to step aside. And I I have real mixed feelings about some of these issues, Bruce. Yeah, no, me too. But, they, you know, there's, there's always you have to embrace change when it happens, but also try to, to stay uh Faithful and and with fidelity to uh, to old standards. If I can just uh, respond one thing to, uh, about Steve about the the water issue here, sure. he's, he's he's largely correct. Steve is largely correct that you know this one storm is not going to make much of a difference. However, what the, the storm the the idea about the dissipating in the desert and things like that, this storm is recharging groundwater. Which uh, is the main one of the main things that that uh, that needs to be done, especially for agricultural areas. And also, uh, we are largely dependent on the uh, Colorado uh, River, and uh, we, there is a you know a, a, a consortium that we were the water from that river is is split up. It got dangerously low uh, this year. Now, you know, we'll see what happens over the next month or two, but uh, hopefully the 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 Colorado River will get up back up to its its normal state, which will help the state immensely, as well as Arizona and Utah and Nevada. And also, um, uh, what's my other thing? Oh, uh, uh, that the, uh, the the snowpack is uh, is also a very important part of the water uh, system here in California. And this main the front of the storm has really walloped the mountains up in uh, northern California which we rely upon for snow melt uh, during the rest of the year. And so even though water kind of dissipates as water for a while, we rely on that uh, snow melt up through the summer and beyond. And so that's why this is going to be kind of beneficial. It's not a long-term solution, but it's helping out a lot, and it is hopefully a start to some sort of uh, reversal but we are he's right we're we're in a drought and this drought is not completely over by any means 
Okay. Yeah, it's it's clearly we're talking about, you know, the the changes, the effects of climate and um, you know, well, you don't need it now, but if I come out to LA next winter, I'll bring some jugs of Lake Michigan water just so yeah, you can, okay. you know, and if you like, I'll freeze it and, and like throw it at you. So you remember Chicago in 3D. Uh, okay. And I'll use it to chip away to put in our uh, cocktails. Thank you. Oh, God, that's a wonderful idea. I like that idea even better. Um, Bruce, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you about uh, Kevin McCarthy. You know, everybody's been talking about, well, he's from Bakersfield. That was actually part of the reason why some people said, well, nobody wants anybody from California. That's part of what they hate about him. Um, I want to talk to you about Bakersfield and Kevin McCarthy. And I want to also talk to you about Gavin Newsom and whether or not we will see him running for national office anytime soon. I'm talking to Bruce Rines, former deputy bureau chief for CBS News in Los Angeles. We're going to be right back after this. Your long drive home just got even easier. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez. Now weeknights from 5 to 7 p.m. on WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Bruce Rines. He was the deputy bureau chief for CBS News in Los Angeles for a number of years. And Bruce, when um, the vote, I can't remember at what point we were in the voting for House Speaker. We might have been around the ninth vote or something. And um, they were CNN was interviewing another Republican congressperson and they were saying, well, you know, um, it might end up being somebody like Steve Scalise or Elise Stefanik who ends up being speaker. You know, a lot of people don't like a lot of things about Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, he's from California and nobody nobody really wants a speaker from California. Like no Republicans are really crazy about about California. Kevin McCarthy is from the Bakersfield area. Where is that? And tell me about it, what you know. Central Valley. I've been to uh, Bakersfield a number of times. Uh, it is uh, run pretty much even today by a business community and ag- big agricultural uh, uh, concerns and uh, uh, energy concerns, oil concerns. That is still who kind of runs the place, but uh, it has a very large, very, very large uh, working class population. And uh, I think that a lot of the people who are working class there and identify themselves as Republicans are kind of getting maybe a little fed up with uh, with McCarthy. He he won his he was reelected easily. That's that's not an issue. But more and more of them, I think, are leaning toward the MAGA uh, side of things and not the I don't even know what to call McCarthy. I mean, you know, like he, the shorthanded MAGA adjacent. I don't know. He's, 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 he doesn't really stand for anything that, that you know, that we can really see. You know, he's, he'll just he'll make any deal to get what he wants, which is just to be the speaker and wield some power. But um, I think that uh, I, I would not be surprised if uh, next in 2024 that the 20th District of California might see a mega 
opponent to McCarthy in his primary race. I'm not saying that that opponent would win, but there might be a little bit of uh, more disgruntlement, depending on what happens over the next couple of years with him as speaker. So you think he'll last? Because most of the people that I've been reading say that, especially since he agreed to this one person being able to bring a no confidence vote, they think that I've heard people say that this could be the shortest tenure as speaker in the history of the country. It, it could be, you know, but I, you know, I've been wrong about a lot of politics over the last few years. I never thought that we'd have a President Donald Trump, but um, I, I just think that once, you know, he can do these things like uh, the this performative vote about uh, the cutting the funding for new IRS agents and and uh, you know stuff about the rules and everything like that. But I think once a, a substantive issue comes before the House, like the debt ceiling. Um, and the Senate has to work with uh, with them on that. I think that it's going to be uh, a lot of trouble, and we're going to just have more of this spectacle that we saw last week of this angsting and back and forth and, and the internal uh, uh, dishing and things like that. And and I don't think it's it's very it's very good for the country. You know, these last few debt ceiling fights have been awful, and as as they were, and it's never been in a situation like we saw in the House, uh, that we see in the House now with this very slim majority with a, a very large contingent uh, opposed to McCarthy. And we've got Republicans like Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert who uh, seem to have absolutely no fear of just burning it down, taking the institutions and simply burning them down. It's not like they want to replace it with something else. It's not like there's a positive agenda. It's they just don't seem to care about being disruptive, which makes me think that this uh, effort to raise the debt ceiling, I think for the first time, I think I, I know it's come right up to the brink several times. But correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we've ever had to close down the government because we couldn't raise the debt ceiling. I think they usually pull it out in the 11th hour. I'm not so sure that will happen this time. What are your thoughts on that? And and also, you know, tying it to uh, spending cuts, like tying it to possible cuts to Social Security uh, and Medicare is uh, this is going to be a whole new territory. And I mean, I what I believe, what I hope as an American, that if it does come to that, that, you know, the people would rise up and tell the Republicans they're wrong, that, you know, we can't make cut significant cuts to those to those programs. Um, but, you know, it's they it seems like the mega contingent, the Gates and the Roberts and everything like that are determined to do something like that. And I don't think McCarthy at least doesn't strike me as somebody strong enough to uh, to lead them the other way. Clearly, being speaker is wildly off the charts, important to Kevin McCarthy. Do you think the people of Bakersfield care one way or the other? No, I don't think. No, I think they care about what happens there in their district, in, in Bakersfield, and the, and the surrounding suburbs, and, and the uh, agricultural fields around there. And I don't know. I mean, you know, by by dint of him being uh, adjacent and working his way up to uh, to uh, Republican House leadership uh, through the years, that you know, that has kind of helped them 
help steer some money their way and things like that. But I don't think that more and more, I mean, I'm certain that the, the business community there kind of likes Kevin McCarthy, but I'm not sure that the, uh, the rank and file, the, the average voter there, the average Republican voter, uh, feels the same way. Bakersfield's getting, it's kind of the demographics are changing, like they're changing everywhere. It's getting uh, more and more Latino and Latina uh, influx, um, and, but I don't know which way those people are, are, are going. You know, it's hard to tell. It's hard to see. It's, it, Bakersfield is not like a coastal city. It's not like Los Angeles or San Francisco or San Diego or anything like that. It is a kind of a, a, an average American middle-sized, small to middle-sized town. And, uh, and you know, there's a, obviously a lot of uh, Republicans there. It's one of, uh, one of our Republican districts. People are here in the Midwest when when, you know, we talk about this. I think people want to paint California with a very broad brush that it's all, you know, hippies or were hippies and um, everything is progressive and forward thinking. And people are always shocked to find out that like they could elect like a Devin Nunes or a Kevin McCarthy. But there are certainly very conservative parts of California. Yeah, I mean, if you go into, you know, Kern County, which is where uh, Bakersfield is, Inyo County, things like that that are inland, uh, closer to the borders of uh, Nevada uh, and Utah, uh, they are, uh, I, parts of it are as red as they come. There are the, the towns up there, they're having um, uh, fights with their school boards, you know, and they're, they're, uh, they're, uh, the school boards are becoming extremely conservative and and repressive i would say in, in several of these cities and uh it's 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 something that they, they feel i guess forgotten that that you know california when people think of california where the money goes in california it's all to the to the coast and the inland areas they feel rightly or wrongly that they are neglected hmm. um politics of grievance we see that in a lot of places. Um, everybody's got theirs and I don't have mine. And why is that? And um, most of the time, at least in MAGA world, it's I don't have that because of these others, these other people who are somehow taking away what what should be mine. Um, do you think that, you know, I, I keep reading, you know, a lot of us, uh, sadly, a lot of the people I, I read are based in D.C. And we all know that's a weird world that doesn't see the rest of the country very clearly. But, you know, I keep, oh, there's cracks. You know, Donald Trump is weak. He's alone. Nobody's supporting him. I suspect he's stronger than those people would like to admit. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say because I think a lot of it is based on, you know, not a lot of the media that we consume. It's a, a lot of the the, the right wing media. And, um, you know, you, you see that, that Fox is like kind of not talking about him as much anymore. I, I can't I don't know about Newsmax or OAN. What the, I'm sure that they're they're still cheerleaders. But I I, I, I don't know that. Uh, I think that people maybe are convinced that Trumpism should remain, but maybe not under Trump because he's just, uh, you know, too. Exhausting, but um, uh, <laughs> so I, I mean, I, I believe that I believe that Trumpism is still a very strong 
thing and may get stronger within the Republican Party, but uh, if, if it can be. But um, I, I don't know that that Trump himself is seen as as the messiah that he was once seen as by many of those people. And 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 in truth, I mean, he didn't really he didn't start the Tea Party movement and he didn't start no, some of the Kevin stuff. McCarthy. That was Kevin. That was Kevin McCarthy. Kevin yeah. McCarthy started that movement. And, you know, and, and Kevin McCarthy's rise has just been so cynical. He started out as a, as a, a, a state assemblyman here and just kind of like cozied up to Arnold Schwarzenegger and told Schwarzenegger that he was this guy and he could do, you know, he'll do things for him and he'll help him get through since he does, you know, he knows more about how government works and all that stuff like that. And, you know, that's how he's just kind of climbed up by uh, being the, uh, the right guy in your face at the right time. And yet the people of Bakersfield seem to be pretty content with that, at least, um, at least they have been uh, so far. We need to take another break, and I want to get to, I still want to get to this idea of the pluses and the minuses of Gavin Newsom on the national stage. Certainly, he has gotten a lot of attention. He trolls Ron DeSantis better than anybody trolls Ron DeSantis. Um, I'm going to be back with uh, former L.A. Bureau Deputy Bureau Chief for CBS News, Bruce Rines, right after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Former Los Angeles Deputy Bureau Chief of CBS News, Bruce Rines, is joining us. We are talking about a lot of what's going on politically in California. I haven't read anything about this recently uh, in the last month or two, but for quite a while, there was a lot of speculation that Gavin Newsom was preparing himself for the national stage. Should someone come calling? Would Do you think that's a fair description, Bruce? Oh, I don't doubt it. I mean, you know, I would have to say that he's one of, Several nationally who are thinking that is President Biden going to run again? You know, I think they're just I think he's, he's getting ready. But I, I, I do believe that he sees a uh, a bigger future for himself. He's just in, um, inaugurated for his second term. So he's termed out after four years. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I really have no doubt that, that he uh, that he's positioning himself for uh, for something bigger, whether that's a presidential run in 2024, depending on Biden or, or not. The governor has the power to fill a Senate seat. If for some reason either she decides to go or a health-related reason, if Dianne Feinstein walks away before her term is out, do you think there's a chance Gavin would appoint himself? No. I don't think so. I think he sees himself as more as, as an executive. You know, he before he was governor, he was lieutenant governor. But before that, he was the mayor of uh, San Francisco. And he, you know, saw himself as a groundbreaker uh, at that time. He was the first in the nation to perform same sex uh, marriages before the, the, the Oberfeld uh, decision uh, that, that it started the ball rolling. And I think he revels in being a leader in that way. And I'm not sure that I, you know, I don't have any special insight, but I'm not sure that, uh, that being a Senator, one of a hundred 
is something that he wants to do. I think he wants to be something that is uh, that he's the boss of. I don't think that should he actually carry through on his promise to run again, I don't think any Democrat will primary Joe Biden. But if for some reason he does step aside, I think we're going to have a really crowded field. What would be your guesstimate of who will jump into that race? Well, I mean, I think then you're certainly talking about um, Gavin Newsom. Uh, I think uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg is probably uh, uh, one of the contenders. I don't it wouldn't be Sanders. I'm not sure about um, um, well, Senator from Massachusetts. I've just blanked on her name, but uh, uh, I'm not sure about her. Yeah, yeah. I, you, um, you you got me. What's her name? <laughs> I voted for her. What's her name? Warren. Um, Warren? Warren? Elizabeth Warren? Of course, yes. Okay. Right. Thank you, Andy, because uh, I was a blank, too. You, I'm not sure that Elizabeth Warren would do it again. Um, um, but, uh, you know, she, she was, I thought very impressive in the last, uh, in the last, uh, go round. Um, uh, other names, you know, there's some people have talked about, uh, governor, governor Paulus of, of Colorado. Uh, I notice um, you're not mentioning Kamala Harris. Yeah. Well, I think Kamala Harris <laughs> would run. I mean, I mean, obviously, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think you, you know. You read about the the tension between her camp and the Biden camp. I don't know. I think she's done a good job with what she's been given, and it hasn't been publicized very well. Uh, I, and I know there's a lot of antipathy towards her. Um, I think you know that she is. Uh, I think she's done. She was a great uh, uh, attorney general here, and she was a great uh, senator. I thought. And being vice president is a really hard job to make a splash in. But, um, you know, obviously she would run. But, uh, you know, it was very interesting uh, when uh, the both of these um, uh, seats came up that Kamala Harris and, and uh, Gavin Newsom had a meeting or a phone call or something and uh, decided what they wanted to do. And Gavin Newsom was adamant he was not going to run for the Senate that he was going to run for governor, which which left uh, Kamala open for the job she wanted, which was senator. So that was, was amicable between them. I don't know what would happen if there was a uh, head-to-head contest between them now, though. I think Kamala Harris, in my humble opinion, has the same problem as Pete Buttigieg. It's not that they're not smart. Uh, I think their resumes are too short. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? One, one thing that, that I will... When, uh, when the last go-round was happened with, with Kamala that I was concerned with was that she often wouldn't answer what she would do about a particular um, issue, that she said, well, we'll have to have a conversation about that. And I don't, I'm, I, I think if you're running to be president of the United States, you should have a real, like, thought-out plan that mm-hmm. is uh, easily uh, discussed and disseminated, like Elizabeth Warren had for, for most, yeah. most issues. Um, but, uh, I, you know, so... You know, I. Look, you got J.B. Pritzker on your list. I don't know. You know, I I, I know J.B. Pritzker is very popular there in Illinois. I don't know. Do you think he's presidential material? Potential presidential material. Uh, maybe if I don't know. 
I don't know. It's it's hard to say. It's hard to say now at this time, you know, and and, and it's also really hard to say, you know, front runners or anything like that. You know, we assume that that Biden is is not going to run because, you know, I just think back that, you know, if, if, if the front runner at this time was the nominee, then Hillary Clinton would have been the Democratic nominee in 2008. And Jed Bush would have been the Republican nominee in, in uh, 2016. You know, it, 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 and Rudy Giuliani would be the Republican nominee in 2008. You know, it's hard to say now at this time. So much changes within, you know, several months. I do think that... <laughs> I understand sending the vice president around the world to be a proxy and to let other countries know, you know, here's somebody really important, which so you can feel that you're important to us. But Joe Biden picked her, but he didn't really I don't think he has been grooming her to take on the big job. Am I missing something? No, to, to, to my eyes, from you know, looking at it from the perspective from here, and watching national uh, uh, national politics and national news, uh, no, I don't think that there is like a great firm partnership uh, between them. I think she's really smart, and I think that she is capable, definitely, of being the president of the United States. I don't know that um, that she's being like kind of pushed out there because I guess Biden, you know, he doesn't want to be seen as a lame duck, and like here's the uh, obvious successor. Mm-hmm. That's my guess, but. Uh, you know, I, th- I think that's it. I think, but I think it's a tough job being vice president of the United States. I'm sure it was tough for Joe Biden when he was vice president to uh, to bear Barack Obama. And but see, that's the thing it. that's different because of all of his years in the Senate and all of his experience. I mean, he actually helped on policy issues. You know, he was talking to senators. He was twisting arms when they were yeah. trying to pass the ACA. He wasn't off. You know, visiting the the leader of Guam and shaking hands and telling them that they're important to us. He wasn't sidelined. He was in the thick of it. And that's what they haven't done with Kamala. Now, she only had what was wasn't it only one Senate term. So she doesn't necessarily have the relationships and the, the same kind of connections that Biden had. But they don't seem to be doing anything to give her any kind of portfolio of any importance. The thing that she did have, I mean, not to be super cynical about it, but one thing that she did have was a very, very good relationship with uh, Barack Obama. And uh, I, you know, I I think it's clear that uh, Obama influenced that decision to some extent, not to a lot of extent, but I think that uh, Biden and, and, and Obama were still, uh, Conferring somewhat on on uh, on political choices uh, during that time, and um, you know, I think that her relationship with Obama helped her, you know, to some extent. You know, uh, to not certainly not to the only extent. And Biden and his team were the ones who made the final decision. But uh, I think that uh, that relationship was something that certainly worked into her advantage in, in some respect. Uh, what do you think about Karen Bass as the new mayor of L.A.? She's doing fine. It's just been a few weeks, but uh, she's hit the ground running. You know, the big issue here, as I'm sure it is in uh, Chicago, or at least one of the top issues, is homelessness. And that's Mm -hmm. the the main thing. It's the main thing that she's uh, going after now. She seems to have a plan. It's just kind of getting, figuring out the funding for it and also getting all the players 
in line because, you know, here in California, I guess it's uh, the same everywhere else, but here in California, you know, there's a lot of uh, disagreement about what, what, where, how we should treat homeless people and what they should be able to, to do and to where they can be and where they shouldn't be. So it's hard getting everybody on the same page for that. I, but I think Karen Bass knows that's the problem. And, uh, and I, I, I think she's very capable. I'm, 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 uh, I'm a, I'm a fan of hers. Uh, you know, well, she's certainly taken a big swing. I mean, she's not, um, she's not going to just sit back and have a conversation about it. I mean, she's kind of staked her reputation on getting something done on that particular issue, which is admirable and also kind of scary. Yeah, I know. It's a big thing. And the good thing here is that her main opponent here, uh, Rick Caruso, who's a millionaire, billionaire, I'm sorry, billionaire uh, real estate developer uh, and lost. But he's like pledged total support, whatever she needs. And uh, and that helps to get his followers and his supporters on the same page. So we're hopeful, but it's, it's, it's only been a few weeks for her. So we'll see what happens. Bruce, it is always such a pleasure to talk with you. The hour just flies by. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. You're very welcome. That's going to do it for Bruce and me. Driving it home with Petty Vasquez is next. Santita will be here tomorrow at 6 a.m., and I will see you tomorrow at 2 p.m. Until then, stay safe, my friends. Have a great evening. Good night.